I just want to echo uh, Philip's words. Thank you for being the hands and feet of Jesus. Your love is evident, and uh, I know that in the weeks to come, we'll have more opportunities to, uh, to lean into those that are struggling and hurting and um, grateful for the partnership that we get to be a part of that. So thank you. Well, we're wrapping up our series, Summer Slump, and I was wondering, as I was thinking about this series, if you've ever had a moment in your life where someone did something that caused you to become really angry. I'm not just talking about moderately angry or just miffed. I'm talking about full-on ticked off. And I know the answer to that. It's happened to every one of us, right? Because it's consistent. That's just, that's just the way life is. But here's what I was wondering. Do you realize that though it happens to everyone, the way we respond varies all the way across this room? Some of you have incredible self-discipline, and some of you don't even know what that means. I was an 18-year-old freshman. In fact, I had just turned 18 a month or so before. And I was walking down my hallway in my dorm when three older upperclassmen jumped me from behind. They just grabbed me. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but their intent was to throw me into a a shower that was on full blast, ice cold. It was some kind of hazing that they, they did, a freshman. And I was shocked initially. I didn't know what was going on. My glasses that I wore at the time, they popped off. My, my watch went flying. You know, before I knew it, I was upside down being marched to a running shower. And it was in that moment that I decided that if I get on my feet again, I'm going to punch the first guy I have the opportunity to punch. I was deeply, deeply mature back then. And what happened was I struggled, I struggled, and I found myself on my feet. And I, I, remember, I remember in the moment, I was ready to punch, and the first person I saw was my roommate, Doug. He'd stepped in to try to defuse the melee. And instead of punching him, I kind of hesitated. And Doug was a big guy. He was like a four-sport guy in high school. And he just bear-hugged me like this. And that was weird because we were like face-to-face. <laughs> I love Doug, but not that much, if you know what I mean. And he just picked me up, and he marched me down the hallway about halfway, and then he set me down and... It was a few minutes later in my dorm room, I was, I was just overcome with embarrassment because I knew, I knew that the way that I had acted wasn't, it wasn't even close to how God would have me to act. I wish I could tell you that that was the last time that that happened. The truth is there would be a few more of those outbursts before it fully resonated with me. I came to understand that I couldn't control what happened to me, but I could control how I responded to it, how I reacted. Well, if you've been tracking with us through the summer, you know that we've been studying the fruit of the Spirit, as Philip mentioned, that it's found listed in Galatians, the fifth chapter, verses 22 and 23, and today we're going to look at self-control. When we live the fruit of the Spirit, there is a change in our character that comes 
because of the Holy Spirit being at work in us. We don't become a Christian on our own, and we don't grow to spiritual maturity on our own either. In fact, Paul says this in Philippians 2.13. He says that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God. God is faithful, and, and the Spirit of God at work in our lives can make a significant difference. So I want us to examine the ninth characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit this morning, which is self-control. Now, what is self-control? Self-control is exactly as it sounds. It's control over self. It's getting deep, right? Hang with me. It involves moderation. It involves constraint. It involves the ability to say no to the dishonorable desires and the sinful actions that somehow seem to be part of who we are. Self-control is the ability to adjust your responses in order to avoid undesirable behaviors or to increase the desirable actions that you want to see in your life, ultimately, so that you can achieve the long-term goals that you feel like God is calling you to. One of the proofs of God working in our lives is the ability to control our own thoughts, words, and actions. Our nature is under the influence of sin, and we battle that. The Bible calls it being a slave to sin. One definition of sin is this, filling Filling a legitimate need by an illegitimate means. Think about that for a second. Filling a legitimate need by an illegitimate means. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're incapable of knowing and choosing how best we, can, we should meet our needs. And as a result, then we... We find ourselves meeting those needs in ways that are just not honoring to God. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to struggle to meet our needs. When we are saved by Jesus, the sacrifice that he offered, we are set free. Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that freedom includes freedom from sin. Romans 6.6 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Jesus set us free. And we're set free for the, from the power of sin and the Spirit of God equips us with self-control so that we can refuse temptation and sin. So here's the key point of this talk today. Self-control can stop sin before sin stops you. Think about that. Self-control can help to stop sin, stop the temptation dead in its tracks before the sin compromises you, before the sin has its effect on you. 
Believers need self-control because the outside world and even internal forces are still at war with us. There was a struggle even for the apostle Paul. Listen to what he writes in Romans, the seventh chapter, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Ever felt that way? I know I have. Like it's, it's the upside down, those Stranger Things fans. It's all backwards, right? There are two parts of the human nature that directly contrast each other. The first is the inner man. We call that the soul or the spirit. This is the personal center of each person. For the Christian, this is the part of the man or the woman that has gone through a transformation when we put our faith in Jesus. This is then what we become, what we call the new man. The other aspect of our human nature is the physical body. We often refer to that as the flesh. And spiritual conflict is present in the life of the Christ follower because one part of our being, the spirit or our soul, follows the law of God, while the other part follows the law of sin, the flesh. Paul explains that it's a war in Romans, the seventh chapter, verses 22 and 23. Listen. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul tells us that every inclination that we have to do right comes under attack. And these attacks, they come not just from outside enemies like ungodly worldly forces or Satan's temptations, but they come from within us. And he says that they are making me a prisoner. This is Paul talking. You you, you can make the case he was in the top five greatest Christians of all time. And he's saying, this is making me a prisoner, which tells us that sometimes even Paul was defeated. This doesn't mean that Paul lived in a constant state of spiritual incarceration but rather he suffered the occasional spiritual defeats, giving in to temptation. And the reality is that the body is still a captive to sin. Paul's point is that his soul had been saved and set free, but until Jesus returns, there will still be temptations. There's still gonna be a fight. The battle is won, but there's still a fight. And as Paul describes his struggle against sin, sometimes he's overwhelmed by his flesh, which evoked this emotional response in verse 24. Listen to what he says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then Paul answers his own question in verse 25. He says, but thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who rescues man from sin. You can look anywhere, you can look all over, the, all over the universe, you will not find a solution, you will not find a remedy for sin, except Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He washes away sin, giving the saved, the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. 
The Holy Spirit is the ultimate influence in this spiritual war. Think about it. The presence of God dwelling in you. You, you, This thing is rigged in our behalf. Through this series, we've we've been seeing how the Holy Spirit equips us with the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives, providing us the equipping that we need for this war that Paul is referring to. Here's a key point. We need self-control Because there is a conflict between the redeemed spirit of the disciple of Jesus and the not yet redeemed, should say, not yet redeemed body of the disciple. There's a conflict. And the spirit of God has been given to us to win that battle. In Proverbs, the 25th chapter, verse 28 King Solomon writes these words. He says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. During the time of Solomon, a city depended on strong fortifications, strong gates, great walls surrounding the city to repel attacks from bands of guerrillas and foreign armies that wanted to come and take that city. Its fortifications, its gates, its towers, if they were broken down and the walls were taken away, the city would have been totally exposed to the attacks of an enemy that wished to conquer it. If a city did not invest sufficiently in this means of protection, it could easily be captured. A wall around an ancient city was designed to keep out the enemy. Judges, they would sit at the gates and determine who should be allowed in and who should remain outside. And then soldiers, using the gates themselves, would enforce those judgments. Like a vulnerable city, Solomon says, you and I need to have defenses as well. In our lives, These defenses might include avoiding close relationships with people who, when we're with them, we sin. We don't know why, we can't explain it, but they just just have a way to lead us in the wrong direction, and we follow. We're weak when we're with them. Or it may mean meeting with other believers, people who inspire you to greatness. I had a, a young guy when I was in student ministry years and years ago. And I I ran into him one night, and he was absolutely hammered. He was so embarrassed the next day, which was Sunday, when he saw me. I said, hey, how's it going, Greg? Oh, I'm okay. You know, it was one of those. And I knew his head had to be hurting. Uh, So I talked kind of loud. I was just that way. I told you I was not very mature back then. This is what Greg said to me. He said... When I'm with good people, I'm really good, but when I'm with bad people, I'm really bad. And sometimes our defenses are choosing who we're gonna be around. It might also include, and it should include, 
spending time with the living word of God. We don't exhibit self-control if we continually entertain that which would enslave us. The greatest battle that you will ever fight is the battle that you will fight against your own flesh. It causes the most damage. It can keep you from the successes that God has desire for your life. The most shameful loss in in life is to live and die the victim of your own spiritual, sinful appetites. But the most noble and rewarding victory is the one in which you will win over your own soul. And you know, the Bible is full of guys who crashed and burned in this, people who were, who were heavyweights in Scripture. I think about King Saul, the first king. What a great warrior, and yet he was totally unable to overcome his jealousy. He even tried to kill his own son because of it. And then there was King David, maybe the greatest of the kings. And yet he had this weakness which led to adultery and ultimately murder. King David. And then there was Samson, the strongest man ever to live. And Samson had this one, he had this one weakness he couldn't control. He obsessed over a beautiful woman by the name of Delilah. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I've never, I'm not gonna do any of that. I'm, I'm cool. But lesser sin have brought lives down in the past. What are your spiritual enemies? What are the temptations that try to control your life? I think there are three categories. At least I came up with three. The first are relentless enticements. These are the temptations that seem to always be there in your life, always. Things like lying and lust and pornography and gossip, they're always there, the list goes on. That's not exhaustive, get the idea. The second, the second is impulsive emotions. Things that lead us to sin, anger, criticizing, complaining, jealousy, those, those lists aren't, that list isn't exhaustive either. And then thirdly, there's this grouping called obsessive behaviors talking too much, obsessing over social media, using your phone obsessively, overeating, reckless spending, you get the idea. Some may hear those kinds of groupings and think, time out. I mean, no offense, preacher, but this is my life, and if I wanna live it the way I wanna live it, so be it. And you know what, you're right, that is true. God has given you free will. But I believe most of us want to live a life that has a fullness to it. That we live a life that at the end of the day we go, that was great, that was fulfilling, that was rewarding, as opposed to, wish I had a do-over on that. I could use a mulligan today, right? The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth and he gives this rebuttal. Apparently there was a discussion or, or some kind of debate going on. And Paul gives this rebuttal to those in the church who are emphasizing that they can do whatever they choose. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians six twelve. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
Paul starts by quoting what seems to be a common slogan in the day, or maybe it was just in the church, I'm not really sure, but it was, I have the right to do anything. And Paul was hearing it from believers who participate in, or at least they condoned, sexual immorality. And in Corinth, there was a lot of sexual immorality. Temples filled with prostitutes that were actually part of the pagan worship. It was common in that place. And these supporters that were saying to Paul, I have the right to do anything, they were supporters of sexual immorality, and they were promoting a a form of debauchery. Their life was all about sex. And Paul responded to their slogan by asserting that having permission is not the final issue. Yeah, you can do that. You have the right to do that. But is that the best way? Paul places his emphasis on what was beneficial. He repeats the slogan again, and then he emphasizes self-control. Those given over to carnal indulgences and an immoral lifestyle, they're characterized by Paul as having been mastered by that sin. They're being ruled by it. But Paul advocates that you don't have to be controlled by your sin. Rather, you can stand against it. And we know that the Holy Spirit equips us with his fruit that's characterized by self-control. Self-control can stop sin before sin stops you. There are two primary ways self-control helps the Christ follower. The first is this. Self-control helps us not to do what we shouldn't do. When we employ self-control from the Holy Spirit, he will help us resist temptation. Temptation at times can be intense, but Paul explains that God is at work, which is why we can and we should resist it. One of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen to what Paul writes here. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. Amen to that. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God's at work. No matter what the temptation might be, exercise self-control because God is working for you. He's not gonna let you be tempted beyond what you can handle, and he always provides a way out. He has everything under control. The second second primary way that self-control helps the Christ followers, self-control helps us to do the good we we should do. The Bible calls us to live like Jesus, 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him must, must live as Jesus did. The Bible also instructs us on how that, how that kind of gets fleshed out, right? Love one another, it says. Feed the hungry and the thirsty. Show hospitality to a visitor. Provide clothes for those in need. Care for the sick. Visit the incarcerated. Care for widows and orphans who are in distress. Provide water for people who are suffering from the effects of a flood. Do you ever have a sense that God wants you to do something? I mean, you see a need and you feel like, Man, I could, I could be part of the solution. And you get that little nudge. James 4.17 says this. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, 
It is sin for them. It is sin for them. You may have been unaware that not doing good, that you're called to do, is actually a sin. Self-control helps us to not only say no to temptation, but to say yes to the good that God is calling us to. Self-control can stop sin before sin stops you. With all this talk about self-control, you may be feeling like you have very little self-control. I mean, the more you think about it, you go, all I can think about is all these times when I should have had more self-control. I wanna give you five tips, and we'll wrap this up, okay? Five tips to prepare you to live with self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit. The first is this, spend time with God. Time reading the Bible, praying, prepares our mind for the spiritual challenges that we will face, not that we might face. Because if you're walking with God, you're gonna face these kinds of challenges. So pray for God to fill you with his Holy Spirit and for more self-control to equip you to live like Jesus and avoid temptation. And the more we pray, the more we study, the more we meditate on his word, the more we fast, the more likely we are to draw closer to God. And the more time we are with God, the more aware we will be the need we have and the availability that we have for self-control that the Spirit provides. Number two, plan your response for when you're tempted. Game plan what the enemy may do to you because of what they've done, what the enemy has done in the past. Think about the possible situations that might break your determination to live like Jesus. When you face temptation, what actions are you going to take to avoid giving in to it? Planning ahead can actually improve self control. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a struggle like I had as a young man with outbursts of anger. If you want to diffuse anger, develop a plan before the temperature or the pressure in your life starts to rise. I'll give you an example of a simple plan, okay? When you feel like the temperature's rising, immediately pray a targeted prayer. Prayer like this. Help me, Lord, to remain calm. Help me, Jesus, I'm going to hit somebody. Help me. You don't want that, God. Help me. It might be that simple of a prayer. Help me to remain calm. And then the second thing to do, just very practical, take some deep breaths, 15 or 20 of them. Just breathe in good and breathe out the mad, okay? And then thirdly, repeat a truth. I picked James, the first chapter. Verses 19 and 20, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I used to carry verses on pieces of paper in my pocket, and uh, I found some in my desk that I had laid in there, and they're frayed, and they're all, but I had them in there because I wanted to memorize those because I, you know, I'm not going to pull out the paper and go, the anger of God does not, you know, I'm not doing that. I, I want it to be in my heart and in my mind. And maybe you only remember one phrase. Human anger does not produce the righteousness of, that God desires. Maybe you just remember that and you repeat that over. This is the struggle. And memorize it. And then fourthly, if it's possible, when you find yourself getting angry, just walk away. Remove yourself from that environment. Take a walk around the block. 
Benjamin Franklin said it well, if you fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. Have a plan. Number three, keep a journal. Some of you are gonna roll your eyes right now. I know that. You hate when somebody says, keep a journal, right? But here's what I'm talking about. You need a record. Record, keep track of the various reactions that you have had when you've experienced, of the experiences that you've had this last week, right? Times when you hit the mark and times when you missed the mark. What were you thinking when you hit the mark? What were you thinking when you missed the mark? Try to write that down and then repeat in the future what worked in the past, all right? Number four, avoid temptation. This is an effective way of making the most of your self-control. Just steer clear of places where you've been tempted in the past. And then number five, count the cost. What's gonna be the price tag that you pay if you sin? Let me close with this. I had a birthday on Monday here at, uh, at, at the offices. Our, the staff surprised me over lunch with a, with a party, and uh, it was awesome. I'm so grateful and appreciative of the way they honored me, and uh, this is a great bunch of people I'm privileged to get to work with. One of the highlights of the, of the uh, entire day was this cake that they had for me. Here's a picture of it. it <laughs> there's not 60 candles on there. They said the fire marshal wouldn't allow that. But it's, it's a triple layer chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. The whole thing's homemade by Becky Houston, one of our, one of our staff members. She's been a cake baker in the past. And uh, it was great. We had cake. Everybody had enjoyed it. But when the, when the party was over, she cut up some cake and sent it home with Ann and I. And then the rest of the cake was left in the staff kitchen. I think there's a picture of that as well. Okay, that's all that's left, right? Yeah. Now, that may look bad to you, but that looks great to me. Okay. So the next day was Tuesday, and I had planned to spend the whole day working on my... Uh, on my sermon, and so I brought, a, I brought my lunch. I was just gonna work from my desk and eat my lunch there, and I brought a salad because the day before I had a lot of birthday food, you know what I mean? And I was needing to kind of get more disciplined and a little more self-control, and so while I was sitting in my office, I ate my salad, I thought, well, that was good, and I'm grateful for that, but, but then I started thinking, um, I wonder, I wonder, about that cake, <laughs> you know, that's in the kitchen. Because that, you know, it would be a shame if that went to waste. And that was my birthday cake, right? Somebody made that triple layer homemade for me. And so I, it would be a shame if it went to waste. And maybe it's already been eaten. I should probably just, you know, walk down there and check it out. And I got down there and nobody had eaten any of it, which I thought was a sign from God. <laughs> So I carved off, and this is one of those things where, you know, you get ready to cut it, and you're kind of like going, is anybody watching? And I carved off a piece, and put it on a plate, and I ate it. I got to testify to this, that it tasted as good on Tuesday as it did on Monday. And it tasted as good on Wednesday as it did on Tuesday and Monday. And uh, I got home Tuesday night, and Ann said, hey, we've got some of that cake left over. Would you like some? And I go, yeah, I probably shouldn't, you know. Until just now, she didn't know about it, so. 
I wish I could say that eating cake was the worst example of the lack of self-control that I've had in my life over the course of my life, but that wouldn't be true, and I'm guessing that I'm not alone with that. Maybe you've been living life, uh, living by the Corinthian slogan that I have the right to do anything, but living life like that has left you empty, uh, feeling guilty, longing for something more. Well, there is something better. Jesus offers a better way. He said this in John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. God wants you to have the best. He created this for us. He wants you to have the life to the fullest. And you know, if if that sounds like something you'd like to know more about, I'd welcome the opportunity to talk with you about it when we're done here. I'll be right down here. Don't miss out. Don't let sin steal best that God has for you. The Holy Spirit has given every believer self-control to stand against that. And so we need to employ that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for equipping us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that you have given to us so that we might remain in you and so that we might allow you to work through us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and grow us in all aspects of, this, of the Spirit's fruit. Give us this self-control to say no to temptation, say yes to the good you call us to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will reach out to every heart who hears this message and invite them to put their faith in Jesus as well. I pray this in his name. Amen.